0: Hey everybody, this is Brian Kabatek. I'm joined by Sean and Say hello to everybody, Sean. Hello, everyone. And this is uh, Law Talk again. This is plaintiff lawyers talking about law for plaintiff lawyers, cases that might be important to you, important in your practice, cases you should know, give you a quick update on very recent case developments, and hopefully this will assist you in your practice in understanding the law. And of course, Our firm, Cabot LLP, is here to assist you in any of your cases, answer your questions if you want to reach out to us and discuss these cases for your own benefit, or of course if you'd like to bring us cases, we're here. So today we're going to have an interesting kind of wide range variety of cases we're going to talk about. Uh, We're going to talk about a case that involves the equitable tolling principles and uh, what California does with them in class action cases we're going to then go and continue on with talking about class actions, but we're going to talk about um, employees and and piece rate work as far as meal breaks and class action cases. Then we're going to skip and talk about federal forum selection clauses that are contractual in nature and how those apply and what the trend might be there. Uh, We're going to go on ahead and talk about uh, disqualification of a law firm or a lawyer based upon past representation and what is too much time to wait and bring in bring those kinds of motions and then we'll finish today by talking about paga actions private attorney general actions and another employment case against the beleaguered starbucks corporation a poor little company sean you probably never heard of that came i think out of seattle so that's where we're going today sean you have any words of
1: wisdom before we jump in No, this should be exciting. We have a lot of ground to cover and a lot of interesting developments.
0: All right, so let's start with our first case today. We're going to talk about a case called Fierro versus Landry's Restaurant. This is a California uh, Court of Appeal case that came down. Um, back around the middle of February uh, from the 4th District Court of Appeal. And really to understand this case, you have to have a working understanding of um, what's commonly come to be known as the American Pipe Doctrine. So this involves the United States Supreme Court previous decision, American Pipe, going back more than 20 years, that held that uh, once a class action is filed, the statute of limitations is told, for all purposes, uh, while that action is pending. And then some of you may be aware that the United States Supreme Court about a year ago came down with a case called China Agritech. Uh, generally, Sean, do you understand the the, the principles in China Agritech? Uh,
1: well, why don't you talk a little bit about China Agritech, Brian?
0: So that's your way of saying no, you have no idea of what I'm talking about.
1: Well, I, I, I believe that that was when the uh, Supreme Court kind of limited its holdings in um, the broader holding in American Pipe.
0: Right, and and what American Pipe held was, of course, that the statute was told while the case was pending, so if a subsequent case got filed, it didn't have to worry about the statute while the class case was pending. And the two important components are that there must be a class case that was filed in a timely fashion, And the subsequent case being filed was beyond the statute of limitations. And so when China Agritech came down, the the United States Supreme Court said that principle of tolling still applies for individual claims, but for subsequent class action cases, it doesn't apply. So you can't rely on um, the principles of American Pipe or equitable tolling principles. And what happened in this Fiero case brought in California is um, the question was raised whether or not the principles in um, uh, China Agritech would apply in California.
1: And um, I believe one of the reasons that the Supreme Court gave in China Agritech, which is kind of adopted here by the Court of Appeal in California, is that if you keep allowing for this to happen, you'll have class certification denied and then a new class rep or a new named plaintiff can pop up and file an action. So they wanted to kind of limit that to prevent uh, an even longer statute period for class representatives to bring class actions.
0: Right. And I think the the, the facts of um, the Fierro case are probably relevant because They filed the class action, and the class action was pending for a long time. And ultimately, the class action got dismissed for failure to timely bring a claim under the five-year rule. And they said, okay, well, that's all right, because we'll just bring a new class action under the principles of American pipe. And here, the California Supreme Court transferred it back to the Fourth District Court of Appeal to consider whether or not the United States Supreme Court's ruling In China Agritech would apply.
1: And spoiler alert, it it does apply. And and they adopted the holding in China Agritech. um, For the procedural reasoning behind this is that, as we all may know, the federal rules of civil procedure, Rule 23 in particular, um, kind of controls the procedural aspect of uh, class actions. And therefore, I guess the Court of Appeal didn't see a reason to deviate from Kind of those governing principles
0: and spoiler alert to your spoiler alert it 's certainly possible that the California Supreme Court could disagree, and under California law, they could hold that the principles of American pipe still fully apply in California, so we 'll see what happens i mean it 'll be interesting to to watch and see if they. Uh, grant review or they um, deny review in this case, and if they deny review, that's a pretty pretty strong indication of what's to come. I, I think what's interesting here, and it's important for us to all understand, is the five-year rule really means five years, and that the courts are looking at this as we're not going to let litigation continue on. And what, what shot was that case that came down recently from the Second District Court of Appeal um, that applies to um, the five year the five year rule.
1: I believe it was a case against a big production company or a movie studio um, where the court ultimately said that it would it wouldn't toll the five year rule. American Pipe wouldn't toll um, that you would still need to bring your individual action to trial within the five years.
0: No, actually, uh, it's a case called I believe. Warner Brothers. And in the Warner Brothers case, um, there's calculation of how the five years work. And the court had a pretty strict interpretation of how the five years was calculated. So the only reason I bring it up is you can be careful in your practice about the five-year rule, because you lose that five-year rule, you lose your case, and then you better put your malpractice carrier unnoticed on notice.
1: Again, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good reminder that uh, these limitations, whether it be you know, statute limitations, any hard deadlines, always err on the side of assuming it's the shortest length of time. Don't rely on hoping that, well, five years might have been told. As we see, there's a general trend now to interpreting it a lot more stricter than it used to be.
0: So, Sean, let's use this as an opportunity to move on to another class action case, this time Jimenez-Sanchez versus Dark Horse Express. Tell us about
1: it. That's right. So the defendant in this case uh, is a trucking company called Dark Horse Express. Uh, But the class of plaintiffs here, the putative class that they were trying to seek class certification for, was a group of People that work in the dairy industry, whether they actually drive the trucks or do work on the trucks or load up the trucks, so you kind of have a little bit of individualization right there already. So plaintiffs sought class certification, and it was ultimately denied um, because the trial court held that there were a number of individualized issues and not enough commonality. As we know, there are certain requirements that need to be met, like numerosity, commonality, adequacy. Um, And the trial court found that the the common questions of law and common questions of fact had not been met here.
0: I'm sort of thinking milk and cookies right now as we're talking about this case. Uh, But it's interesting because it's a very specific industry and it's a very specific way that business is done under um, piece rate work.
1: Right. And piece rate work is where an employee or someone working for a company gets paid a certain price based on a contract for the work that they do, not on an hourly basis, not on the amount of time they spend, but on the task done. Like every loading of a truck gets compensated at $100, for example. And that is how the class in this case got paid. However, the difficulty that plaintiffs had in uh, establishing class certification here was that there were so many different categories of people and they got paid at different rate f- rates for different types of tasks.
0: And there's, there's nothing fundamentally illegal about piece rate, but people have to make at least minimum wage for every hour that they work.
1: That's right. A lot of industries rely on piece rate. And, and while many people get ended up getting cheated, and we see this in our own practice here in, in the trucking industry, um, generally, in theory, it's fine so long as uh, the employer can show that they're being compensated at least minimum wage. And
0: so long as the employer can also show that there are other benefits that are there supposed to be paid, such as overtime, meal breaks, rest breaks, are properly taken care of, which sort of leads into what happened in this case.
1: That's right. The The Court of Appeal reviewed the trial court's denial of class certification, and they agreed with them in terms of um, question, individualized questions on everything except for the issue of uh, compensation for meal and rest breaks. Even if you're paying at a piece rate, you have to separately evaluate and separately compensate or provide the breaks or compensate your employees for the breaks. And over here, that was the one question that, the, that seemed to be a common question of fact, a common question of law here amongst all the class members, regardless of the position they had.
0: And uh, as a side note, though, there is a this- Big distinction between rest breaks and meal breaks under California law. Meal breaks are unpaid time off to eat your lunch. And there's certain rules and requirements about how often you're supposed to have that. It can be waived. Uh, people quite often, particularly in the food industry, decide to skip their meal breaks because they can make more money off of, off of tips. However, California law and the California Supreme Court has been incredibly clear about rest breaks. You can't waive them They're compensated time off. I believe they're ten or fifteen minutes long. Isn't that right?
1: That's right. And and uh, in this case, in Jimenez, the court of appeal relied upon a 2013 case called Blueford versus Safeway, which held specifically that rest periods, so those ten or fifteen minute rest breaks, must be separately compensated in a piece rate system at at least minimum wage. Because
0: you can't. Because if you make somebody work through their their rest break you're actually stealing money from them because they're entitled to be compensated for that.
1: It's, it's wage theft, ultimately, and, and, and that's what the uh, court had held in Blueford, and that's kind of the ruling that this court of appeal relied upon in the Jimenez case.
0: You know what's really interesting, Sean, is that there's no legal requirement that young attorneys and law firms have to be given meal or rest breaks. Did you know that?
1: That's right, yeah, but, but, but that doesn't stop me from taking all the breaks I want every day. So,
0: Right, but also there's no overtime rule. Did you know that?
1: There isn't okay, so so I should start going home earlier, is what I'm hearing.
0: Oh, I just I completely failed, don't I? I've completely failed here. All right, well, let's move on to our next case, which is Corman versus Princess Cruise Lines, and the reason I wanted to talk about this case was um, not so much that. It, it, the narrow issue in this case is something that's going to pop up in people's practices right now. Um, however, it may be a trend. There may be a trend here that we need to look out for and see. So just very quickly, the facts in Corman versus Princess Cruise Lines, which you should probably can take from the title, is some passenger on a cruise ship is suing the cruise line for some unhappy experience, personal injury, something like that, that may have occurred while on the ship. And in this case, the passenger, as all passengers who have ever taken a cruise at any time in their life have, is they get a ticket, which becomes part of their contract. And that contract has, in this case, a forum selection clause, which selects federal court over state court. And the argument that Corman made in this case was, it doesn't really matter that it says that, I can still pursue my action in state court. And what what did the court hold? Okay, Sean doesn't know. So what the court held in this case was that the forum selection clause with a federal court selection is enforceable under California law. And the reason I bring this up is because I see another dangerous trend here. And the trend that I see is that putting into contracts right now, arbitration clauses class action waivers, they have become de rigueur. That's French, Chant. That's French. Very fancy. Very, Very fancy. fancy. Can you translate that for us? Not really. But it means it happens all the time. And in this case, I'm concerned that these kinds of cases come down about forum selection clauses. Defendants are going to start putting into contracts. Um, whether there's arbitration or not, in non-arbitration settings, you have to sue us in federal court, which, of course, is where every defendant wants to be every day and the enforceability of these kinds of agreements could foreshadow a dangerous trend.
1: And we do see this trend already occurring when it comes to arbitration clauses and um, class action waivers, in especially in employment agreements. So this might be the next in their arsenal here. Uh, but by the way, de Gore means required by etiquette or current fashion.
0: Thank you. That's very helpful. If nobody else got anything out of today's uh, for a podcast, it's the actual interpretation of Derriger. So uh, let's go on to the next case, which is Antelope Valley groundwater cases. Um, and the background of these cases is rather irrelevant, but have to do with, as you probably can guess, what, Sean?
1: Groundwater. Where? In the Antelope Valley.
0: Do you know where the Antelope Valley is? I, I don't know,
1: but I suspect there isn't many antelopes there.
0: Um, maybe not anymore, but it's out in the, uh, sort of northeastern corner of Los Angeles County and going up into Bakersfield. And these cases apparently have been going on for some time. And the reason I want to discuss this case today was there is a, um, what I would say is a long-term trend that I would put best as if you can't win on the law, win on the facts. If you can't win on the facts, win on the law. And if you can't win on either, go after the lawyers. So, Um, disqualification motions, which are typically filed because of some conflict of interest. Uh, There's a lot of litigation that's gone on about disqualification motions. The law is fairly settled in some respects, fairly not settled in others. There's a recognition that these motions can be tactical in nature, but there's also a recognition that disqualification motions are important if lawyers have switched sides.
1: That's right. And in this case, it was a very interesting... I found it kind of comical, and it's that's exactly right. They were trying to go after the lawyers here. Um, you had the party that was seeking disqualification... Uh, on the grounds of conflict, because they were they were previously represented by a firm who was now representing an adversary in in these cases, uh, except the court of Appeals said, "Well, you can't do that when you've availed yourself to the benefits of representation by that firm for a very long time." And I think they sat on their hands, and not only sat on their hands, but actively benefited from the representation of the lawyers they were trying to disqualify for years, and not just a matter of weeks or months.
0: I I think what's important to understand in these cases is that you have to act quickly if you're trying to disqualify. So in this case, um, there were, they knew about their former law firm being adverse to them for a decade and it took them a decade. And obviously that's an extreme example and probably one of the reasons why this case led to being published. But as a practice tip, the minute you know about, um, adverse representation or a potential conflict or facts leading to disqualification. Don't sit on your rights. Act quickly. Courts are not going to look at a situation and say, you held it in your back pocket as a trump card, kind of a bad word these days, but you're not going to hold it in your back pocket and pull it out when you decide that things are not going your way. You need to act on it quickly, and I don't think that even sending a letter to opposing counsel preserves your rights. It might be a good way to start, by saying there's a conflict, you need to withdraw, but don't wait around very long if they don't withdraw or they don't get new counsel.
1: And, and I just looked up the, the facts here, actually. Twelve years was uh, how long the party seeking disqualification was represented by the firm, that they were concurrent representation with uh lawyers that they were seeking to disqualify, so for 12 years. And uh, the the trial court said that the delay in seeking disqualification was prejudicial to the other side. And then the Court of Appeal affirmed and noted that the county that was seeking disqualification of the lawyers had benefited, not just in theory, but financially benefited uh, from the representation and they failed to show what would justify that type of delay of 12 years of representation with consent. So it's kind of incredible.
0: You know, Sean, I'm not saying that our cases aren't interesting. They are. And I'm not saying that we don't love what we do, but because we do. But every now and then when I read these criminal cases, I think that I completely understand why the public finds them so much more titillating and fascinating than our cases. Because the opening line of one case that I'm looking at says, Priscilla Valdez pleaded guilty without a plea agreement to one count of knowing Uh, knowingly attempting to export 10,000 rounds of
1: ammunition from the
0: United States into Mexico.
1: Well, maybe next time we could start focusing on exciting criminal cases, find some cool ones like that.
0: The only reason that we won't do that is because our listeners really are interested in California law that applies to plaintiffs and how plaintiffs operate their practice, and that's what we're really trying to spread here, as much information as we can So folks know that these cases are out there. Most people don't have the time in their average day to read our cases and to look out what's going on in the law, and we try to cover a wide range of issues that come down um, that may or may not impact your practice or may help you identify cases. Either handle yourself or refer to others, and reminder that our firm is there to answer your questions and, of course, to work with you on your cases. So the last case we're going to cover today... Is a case called uh, Carrington versus Starbucks.
1: So Carrington versus Starbucks is a PAGA representative action. It's a PAGA only action. Uh, for for people that don't know, PAGA is the Private Attorney General Act, which allows a plaintiff to step into the shoes of the state and sue on behalf of all other aggrieved employees. It's not like a class action, however, in a sense, it is a representative action because. One person is representing the interests of all other aggrieved employees. The trick with PAGA is that there is no requirement to establish the class action elements from Rule 23, what we talked about earlier. However, courts have now interpreted PAGA um, to impose a requirement that at the very least a representative in a pog action first establish that they are an aggrieved employee and you know oftentimes courts sometimes have bifurcated trials where first you have to show that that one individual was was harmed and then you show that they can represent the interests of everyone else because their harm is similar to what the other aggrieved employees experienced so it's it's a great tool and allows um, allows plaintiffs to overcome arbitration clauses and other roadblocks but but there are some stumbling blocks along the way
0: the way it keeps the um enforcement of arbitration clauses at bay is because you're standing in the shoes of the government uh and that the united states supreme court cases starting with concepcion and moving forward over the last decade have held that arbitration clauses never um are a bar to the government or government attorneys to pursuing claims
1: that's right and so here uh I'm not certain if there was an arbitration clause, but but of course, because of PAGA, the plaintiff was able to overcome it. So the plaintiff here engaged in a trial where she was able to establish that Starbucks has a policy that said that meal period payment would not be provided where an employee worked slightly more than five hours. And I think that's actually a quote from the um, from the actual meal break policy that Starbucks had at the time. And defendants argued that plaintiff can't. Dis- so, so the law
0: is that if you work five hours, you get a meal break, right? That's right. And here, Starbucks was saying if you work only slightly more than five hours, you don't get a meal break. That's right. You
1: don't get a meal break if you work just, quote,
0: slightly more than five hours. So how does that work? Is it
1: like five hours and 10 minutes, but at five hours and 15 minutes you get a meal break? And and where do you draw the line? Yeah, is it right. is it a matter of seconds or five hours and 10 Look, minutes? Look, we get it. Employers
0: don't like this whole notion of um, having to pay meal breaks or give meal breaks and give people time off, and it affects their staffing, and we know that employers like to be able to manipulate the workday. But California really has established these rules and said, you know, we we have some pretty strict rules that apply to how you treat your employees, and, and this is one of them. But uh, I, I rudely interrupted, so go ahead. No,
1: that's okay. So the defendant here argued that because this representative's experience was individualized, they, they didn't concede that the policy is is violative of the law, but they argued that this representative's experiences are very individualized and she can't proved that there was a pattern in practice of applying this. Um, However, she did testify that on some instances, in the short span that she worked there, just the mere five months she worked there, she experienced this type of violation. And the court found that that was enough. And then the defendants argued that they should, uh, they should have been allowed at the trial court level to put on evidence of every other alleged violation that appears based on their time records. And we've actually seen this in some of our cases ourselves, where we say, hey, the records here show that there's 30,000 violations. And defendant's response in a PAGA case is, well, we should get to have the opportunity to rebut every one of those 30,000 instances of violations. Therefore, this trial is not manageable. Uh, The trial court here didn't allow them to put on such evidence um, because it found that the policy itself was violative. And ultimately though, while this sounds like it's a it's a happy ending, uh the trial court found and, and the appellate court affirmed that Starbucks had made a good faith effort to comply with their uh with the Mere period laws. And that's why even though plaintiff was seeking, I believe, upwards of seventy million in uh penalties the trial court reduced the amount and actually awarded 150000 in penalties under PAGA. You know,
0: I'm so glad you brought that up because I did highlight that myself when I read the case, and I thought that, that that was very interesting because although I've seen on the one hand the courts are giving great deference to these PAGA actions, and they're allowing lawyers to bring these actions, and they're making it easy to go to court and go to trial on them. On the other hand, They're giving trial courts great deference in determining the amount of penalties. And when you brought that up, it really rung true to me that that's one of the problems with these cases. However, because there is a big however, however here, attorneys are generally allowed to collect attorney fees. So even though there may have been a small or a relatively small amount of penalties in the case, and I think what they decided was $5 per violation, um, the lawyer— Instead of
1: $50, um And and that's the range that the statute allows for, yeah. And and it's
0: it's perfectly acceptable, according to this court at least, for um, the the trial judge to make a determination. I should point out that this case uh, came out of the 4th District Court of Appeal, which... um, has a spotty record, sometimes can be very progressive and sometimes be very conservative. But they certainly found that this wasn't inappropriate, $5 per violation. Uh, However, it doesn't tell those stories. So there may have been a very large attorney fee award at the end of the
1: day. Yeah. And I think the takeaway from this is that PAGA is sort of the Wild West. And um, on the one hand, it seems kind of murky, and, and, and there's risks involved in proceeding with this. But like Brian said, you know, at the end of the day, you can make an application for attorneys' fees if you win on one of these claims, and and I think just because it's uncertain and it's the Wild West doesn't mean that we shouldn't be at the forefront as plaintiffs' attorneys trying to take charge of it, because you best believe that the the employment uh, or the employer side is dumping a ton of money trying to erode away at PAGA. So yeah, we have do we've seen,
0: to Right. And we've seen um, this exact issue brought up in our cases. We're going to have to bring in 30,000 people and 30,000 people testify. So the defense works very hard. I'm convinced that the defense goes to seminars and they get these ideas and they pursue them. And it's our responsibility to constantly get out in front of them and, and win the issue so that we get good law. Keep in mind, folks, if you get cases like this, um, you need to share them with the consumer attorneys of California if they get up on appeal so we can help. Uh, you need to talk to your other plaintiff lawyers so the people can help. The, the biggest fear that we have is that a case comes down where nobody reached out to their brothers and sisters in the plaintiff side to ask for help, and we get bad law, and then it takes much longer to correct it. So uh, this is uh, Brian Kabatak along with Sean and Say goodbye, Sean.
1: Goodbye, everyone.
0: And we hope that you enjoyed this today. Remember, our firm is Cabot LLP. We're available to answer questions about the law. We love the law. We love representing people who are victimized or hurt or injured by others. And we also like working with folks on their cases. Feel free to reach out to us. Our website is kbklawyers.com. And we're here, and we'll be back soon. Thanks very much.